Welcome to Black's Academy and also welcome to our monthly market mix. In our monthly market mixes, we provide Black's Academy listeners with a little bit more information than just about the U.S. stock market. We provide a top-down view and vantage point so that you can be more aware, more educated, and more able to move forward in finding investing and trading opportunities. Let's go. You should know that this July monthly market mix is a special one. This is what we call the halftime market update because the year is now at the halfway point. And just like any good competition, this is the time to make adjustments. This is the time to look at where the market was and also get a good idea of what's ahead. Even though we don't know the future, when you finish with us, you'll have a much better idea of what to do regardless of it. And if you want to learn more, join our trading bootcamp this fall. If this is your first time, Please be advised that we go pretty quickly through the markets as an agenda. What you're about to hear is what we call the market review. I'm going to pick some charts from the last monthly market mixes and see how well we did. Good, bad, and different. Then we're going to progress to some of the most important topics that everyone seems to be talking about right now, which is inflation and recession. I'd like to add a little bit more, which I call progression. Now let's get to the charts. As always, first up is the S&P 500 index. In our June monthly market mix, we saw that the index sold down to its 38.2% retracement. A retracement is a support level in the market for certain types of market technicians. In June, we were looking for the market to keep going, maybe as low as the 50% level, which is in yellow. And in a worst case scenario, it could go all the way down to the 61.8% level. These levels as represented by these straight lines on the chart, if you've never seen this type of technical analysis, first you should check us out, but just know that these are Fibonacci retracements. They represent levels where the market will likely move to and from as it's going either up or down. It's fascinating stuff, but for right now, I want to look at what happened since the last monthly market mix. Now we're back over to our trusty trading view screen and we have up the S&P 500 index. What I'm going to show very briefly is another set of Fibonacci levels going from the March 2020 lows all the way to the December highs. And we'll make note of the levels where we were, which was again, this 38.2% level. You can see that the market touched it moved up some, and then as expected, went lower. For good or bad, it didn't get as low as we thought it would, at least not yet, to the 50% level. This was our lower boundary of where we thought it would go. And it seemed to have penetrated below the levels that we have listed. But there was one more Fibonacci level that isn't very used. We talk about it a lot in our technical trading, especially in our foundations course. It is the 44.7, and that seemed to be the champ level. In fact, the market bounced off of it, and we've remained off of those highs since June 17th. So far, so good. The market still has some upside potential. Keep in mind that these levels represent future support and resistance in the market. So the market still could keep lower, but this should be a sign of optimism for investors and traders alike. Now, 
Let's look at his counterpart, the NASDAQ. For the NASDAQ in June, we saw that the tech stock index sold a little harder, sold off heavier into the 50% retracement, which again, just like the 38.2 in this system of Fibonacci levels is a support zone. And remember support is whether the price can stabilize itself and hopefully move high. Tech stocks are more volatile. That means they move around more. They move up more and everybody's happy. And then they move down more in which everybody panics a little bit more. You can say that there's a lot of issues that actually came into whether tech stocks sold off, but what's to be most important here is to understand that our boundaries here were that 50% level and on the bottom, there's a 61.8% level. Now, just like with the S and P, there was a level in between that people don't talk about. It's that 57.3% level. It's a very obscure level, but we use it at blacks. We've used it a long time. We know what it means. My guess looking ahead is that if the S and P sold off and sold into an obscure level, chances are that the NASDAQ did too, just at a lower level. So my guess is that that 57.3 is our number, but let's take a look at the charts and see. Back over to trading view, we now have up the NASDAQ as represented by the ETF QQQ. And I'm going to draw once again, a Fibonacci retracement from the lows to the highs. And just like expected, I'm going to bring our, just our levels down a little bit because the 38.2 wasn't as important on the NASDAQ because of its volatility, but the 50% level was our go-to level in June. And as the same, we had our 61.8%. 61.8% is a very important number when using Fibonacci levels. But again, this obscure 57.3, that was our number. So far, the NASDAQ has pushed up just like the S&P. And we look to have some more upside potential as long as it can stay in this range. That does not mean that we're guaranteed to go higher. But as we take up more time, this is just sort of a technical thing. As the markets take more time, consolidate around these ranges, it starts to get the courage. Maybe the fundamentals align. Maybe we'll figure out what the Fed does, which we have a Fed meeting at the end of the month, by the way, that will basically help us understand and give some courage to the market having more room to go higher. Now, again, if we start to break these levels, you know what that means. We can continue lower. And as we continue lower, the panic will return and the market sell-off will most likely intensify. But for right now, we're holding in the levels where we thought it would be, and that's a really good sign. Next up, small caps. Now for the Russell 2000, the small cap index, it being a little bit more volatile than the S&P, it sold off into the 50%, like the NASDAQ. It's not quite as volatile as the NASDAQ, but volatile enough. The interesting thing here is that at the 50% retracement level, in Fibonacci speak, you also had another level which other market technicians know as price action. Price action depends on support and resistance level based on the natural look of the market. You had a price action resistance right over here that if you know anything about technical analysis, resistance once it's broken and come back to provides support for the market. So what once was a price that was hard to get over, once you finally get over it, it's hard to get under it on the way back down. And you can see this 
in the static chart that we have here, it was once resistance over here before the coronavirus. Then after the crash happened and the market was flooded with optimism and stimulus money, gapped over, moved higher, sold back into the same 50% level. And this is where we were when we started looking at the levels. Once again, this 50% level was kind of our go-to level. It could go down to 61.8, but here we were pretty much standing firm thinking it's going to hang around this level. So a break of this strong multiple confluence of technicals with the price action and the Fibonacci's at the 50% made it a little in our minds stronger than the other levels that were shown in the S&P and the NASDAQ. So now we're going to take a look at what actually happened. On the Russell 2000, we actually had a slight breach of the 50% level. It's recovered, but of the indices, we like to pay attention to the Russell because it does tend to be that canary in the mine. It tends to be sensitive to economic changes a little bit more than the S&P, sometimes as much and sometimes a little bit more than even the NASDAQ, probably because of the weighting of the larger stocks in the NASDAQ, be that as it may. This one has come slightly lower. So there's a little bit of worry that we could actually come lower. So I'm going to highlight this 61.8% level because we could come down to the 57.3 or 61.8. Now, if we break below here in small caps in this Russell 2000, I think it actually is an indicator of much worse times ahead. But once again, it's July. We're going to have a Fed meeting in a few weeks. Once we know what the Fed does, once we know how the market responds to that, we'll know what these levels are. But just know that the Nat, that the the Russell 2000 was not as compliant with the levels that we were thinking about. It actually broke through the levels. We don't like to see that. We like to see clean touches of the levels to and fro as it bounces between these support and resistance levels. So this is something to watch out for. Now. We're going to go over to a market that we haven't touched in a while, and that's uh, crypto. We haven't touched cryptocurrency since our April market mix, so we've been in full quarter. But what we saw there was a little different than we saw everywhere else. In crypto, based on the pattern, based on what was going on at the time, I actually thought that we would move up higher to this 50% retracement because there was a lot of price action, a lot of technical things going on at that level. We were sitting around the 38.2 and 41.4 levels at the time back in April. So I felt like we had enough energy in the market and the crypto market to take us a little bit higher. And then we would move, we would push lower to around 30,000. And the reason why it pushed, well, I thought it would push lower is because of a very specific technical pattern. Now, if you want to know more about technical patterns, you need to come rock with us at Black's Academy. We are technical technicians. We are technicians, technicians. We work off the math. We work exclusively off the math, especially in opaque markets like crypto, where the fundamentals don't necessarily mean as much as the technical sometimes. So be that as it may, let's see what actually happened. And I'm pretty sure if you've heard by now, you already know what time it is in crypto. Hint is crypto winter, even though it's summer everywhere else. Again, bringing up Bitcoin. Our gap guide path higher to the 50% was a little bit off. It just rolled lower and did it ever roll lower. We were looking at, you know, the first move down to here, which we got, we got the move into the area that we thought, but there was additional breakdown, panic in the market, 
as the greater market and more importantly, investor sentiment, not just in crypto, but in risk markets in general started to fade into May and into June. And that's where we are now. One of the things that surprised a lot of people was that crypto was not that guy when it came to being a diversifier type market. We'll talk a little bit more about that, hopefully in our live segment, but risk assets, those assets that when investors are hyped, like stocks, they go up, crypto conform to that hype. And that's perfectly natural. It's not the single crypto out. It's just to identify going forward. We didn't quite know exactly what to classify crypto as, but right now, given its price history, given its behavior, you should know crypto as a risk asset. And why that is important, we'll talk a little bit about diversification a little bit later. That's so important to your portfolio because just because you have crypto and it's different from stocks, doesn't mean that when times are rough is really different. And right now, times are uncertain. Not necessarily rough for everybody, but uncertain. Speaking of rough times, we're gonna talk a little bit more about one more market, and that's going to be crude oil. Crude's a fun market to track. And in our last June market mix, there was a technical pattern that we know I personally love that indicated that even though prices were high, they were back scraping towards the high that was exacerbated by the Russo-Ukraine war, there was a chance that crude could go lower. Of course, for this to happen, the fundamentals would have to align. But one of the things that did happen between then and now, the Fed Reserve came in crushing with a rate hike, which actually strengthened the value of the US dollar by making it more valuable relative to other currencies. With crude oil and other commodities denominated in dollars, that means that it took slightly less or slightly fewer dollars to make up for the actual price of the same barrel of oil. So as we go look at the chart now, we'll see what happened in crude. And I can tell you just based on this pattern, as I was at the time, I knew it wasn't a triangle like some other people were saying. This is a very specific technical pattern. It's the stuff that I like, I really, really like. And I will tell you in, the, in advance, it worked out. Now, looking at crude futures, we can see that we were here. This is another level, but I can pull my Fibonacci's like I had prior and you will get the same result. I'm gonna put the 78.6% level on here and I'm gonna isolate it so that it sticks out so that we can see it a little bit better. I'm gonna put another level that is sort of our top side because if you notice, as we're going through here and looking at where the level should be, we have sort of a bare minimum, and then we have a maximum constraint. These constraints give us sort of some room to let the market do what it does before we have to change our thesis or our hypothesis. Here, 76 was pretty much the top side. It didn't go up to 86, which I mentioned would be the top side. If it went above that, I would expect that we would go higher. But here, we actually had a pretty strong move down, again, in commodities and crude oil prices, which, you know, as a trader, I'm very excited about. And as a consumer, you probably thinking, well, you know, crude oil prices go down and gasoline prices should probably go down too. And that's great thinking. However, there's a couple steps in between, which I'll discuss here very briefly as to why that might not be the case, unfortunately. Although there is correlation between crude oil prices and gasoline, there tends to be an imbalance, what we call asymmetry between when they go up and when they come down. And as the chart here says, when they go up, it's up like a rocket. 
when they come down though, gasoline prices tend to drag it out a bit. And there's a lot of reasons for that. For one, there's a lot of steps in logistics and the refinement, transport, and getting it to your pumps. There's a lot of chemical processes that happen between there too. Retail gasoline as an element in the world of crude oil products is at an end point and where we see it at the pump, it's really a low yielding industry. I mean, for the people at the pump, we talk to them about, oh, well, the owners of price gouging and things of that nature, what they're actually doing is protecting themselves from an uncertain future when gas prices go up. As they're using what's reserved underneath the gas stations, they have to replace it. The replacements come at a higher cost because the cost of crude oil itself is going higher. So they have to raise their prices because as shown here, there's not a lot of gain to be had about 10 cent on top of wholesale prices. So not really a lot. That's a really small margin that can be eaten if a gas station owner miscalculates or anything about the future. So the other part of this, and it brings up a really interesting market as well. One that you may not have thought about is what we call reformulated blend stock for oxygenated blending or RBOB. This is pretty much the gasoline derivative that is used and combined with either E10 gasoline, E10 ethanol or ethanol itself to actually get what you have as gas station at the pump. If you see in the chart here, there's reformulated and then there's conventional method. Most of the country by land mass uses a lot of the conventional, which is combined with ethanol, but the reformulated, which is supposed to be cleaner, all the green areas here in the chart actually use it. Now, granted, it's supposed to be clear burning and whatever, but as a trader, as an investor, somebody who looks at the data, the most important thing about the RBOB, this reformulated blend is that it is a closer approximation than the, than the conventional type to actual gas prices. And what I'm going to show you is that our Bob actually corresponds more to gasoline prices. And we're going to see, even though they're correlated with crude oil prices too, as crude oil came down, our Bob did not. And that's why gasoline prices at the pump are still higher, even though crude continues to make lower prices. Check this out. So we have crude prices in the burnt orange and we have RBOB features in the blue. I've highlighted a couple of points and you can see that prior to 2022, they're pretty correlated, but you can, and even in after the in Russian invasion of Ukraine, you can see that there's a high, both of them made a high and you made the pretty much the highest in crude since 2008 before both of them started subsiding. And we saw this pattern, but whereas crude went on to make the pattern that I knew and loved. Arbob made a higher high with gas prices corresponding more strongly in relationship to Arbob than with crude, we're going to have to have crude prices move much lower before you start really feeling some benefit at the pump. So once again, there's got to be some external factors, some external inputs to these markets to really help this out, or we're still going to have some more pain and not to alarm anybody else, but even though that pattern played out like I thought it would, that's great. There is still some upside very visible here in looking at another pattern. And you're wondering why I say, well, why does he bring up all these patterns? Once again, 
at the core, even though I look at macroeconomics, I look at intermarket relationships, I am very technical and pattern oriented to the core. So I see more upside here possible in crude oil. I'm hoping that I'm wrong, but I know what I see here. So don't expect the prices to lower too, too much. They should come off some because again, we've had a pretty significant slide from this top in our Bob. So we should get some as the contracts, the new contracts start to come out at the gas station, start renewing, we should get lower prices, but there's still lots of upside in store, especially when we start to look towards the end of the year. Speaking of moving forward, as we start to talk less about the actual technicals of the chart and we talk, start to talk about more about the economy, we're here sort of as expected at near 40 year highs, maybe even above in the next reading on inflation as measured by the consumer price index or CPI. There's a lot of stuff that went into it and it depends on who you ask what the main culprit is, but at Blacks Academy, I don't like to single out one thing because what tends to happen in markets is that there's a number of inputs, a number of variables, a number of factors that work in conjunction to make any scenario. And that's what makes the markets as we look forward, hard to predict. You don't necessarily have to predict the markets and instead we really don't, but oftentimes if you can look at those factors as a whole, and then start to isolating them, you can kind of come up to an idea of where we're going to go next. And for example, a lot of economists think that we've already peaked. They've thought we peaked for months now in terms of inflation. The Fed itself is probably hoping that we've peaked, but there's another camp and I tend to be in this camp thinking that there's much more room to go higher. And the reason is simple is because a lot of the stimulus effects, not just from 2020 and 2021, but definitely their contributing factors, but even before then the quantitative easing and the near zero interest rate environment, which we came from have a lot to do with why prices are elevated. Inflation itself is in a growing economy, kind of a constant. It's just that right now the rate is high. We'll talk more about that in the live session, but also we'll talk about how working from home contributes because people have more money to spend their supply chain issues, because you would think that coronavirus had done a real number to the supply chains. It did at one point in time, but really demand for goods from consumers. And remember the U S economy is 70% consumer based on $22 trillion in total GDP. So consumerism counts a lot. Consumers have been buying stuff because they have more money and once the demand goes hot, the prices have to go high, the wages have to go high and it becomes an inflation spot. That's pretty much it. If you look at where we are in context, yes, we're back to, you know, the early 1980s and a lot of people have talked about that. But one of the things that's kind of missed is the fact that what's different now between what was then is we're coming off near zero interest rates. You go back to 1981, the Fed benchmark interest rate was at like 19%. So that means all of the bank loans and mortgages and things of that nature were at some level higher than 19 because 19 is what where the 
banks and all the financial institutions were borrowing. That was a rate of borrowing from the Federal Reserve. Everything else is plus on top of that. Plus, technology has expanded. There's a lot of things that makes it different. But also, we don't have to go back 40 years. You can start to see just here because we actually had a deflation in the great uh, financial recession, 2008, 2009. But you can see following that, as we came out of that, simulated our way out of that, you had sort of this low period into 2014, 2015, when, again, the QE started to, you would think that they were rolled out of the system. It did not. We actually had rising inflation all the way into 2018, which was significant. And then it sort of tapered off until we went into the coronavirus. And then after that, we had a major acceleration because we had a number of inputs like none other we've seen before. One of the things that, you know, we attribute to it, and I can't say that it is, again, it's not all government spending, but since 2001, the government has been in deficit spending and granted with an economy as complex as influential and strong as the United States, still number one in the world freestanding, the government has, unlike individuals, you can't really say that, oh, well, I can't have deficit spending. No, you're not the United States government either. But having a government like this, you're able to have deficit spending without really, really threatening the economic livelihood. But to the point, this cannot go on forever. Now, granted, it's gone on for two decades now, but these deficit spending along with, again, loss of consumption, you can have the wars, you can have tax cuts, a great expansion of not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy and all the tributaries that came, that linked them all together. This is what contributed to where we are now in terms of inflation. It's important to know that once again, it's not just one factor. It's not just what happened last week or last year. We're looking at things that have evolved over decades, but we're starting to see what is unexpected. But technically, if you look at it all over time, it should not be. As we look a little bit more around the world, the story of right now is simple. Money just got more expensive. We've had a more than a decade of really cheap financing. And this cheap financing begets more asset appreciation, which begets more spending, more earning among those that have it. Now, if you don't have money or haven't had money here, you probably have suffered. But now, as all of this stuff starts to unwind, we can see that a lot of the central banks around the world, the governments around the world, the financial institutions around the world are starting to decelerate. And they're going to do that in response to inflation by slowing down their growing economies. Again, remember, to me, inflation is a byproduct of economic production. We've had unrealistic production at very low, cheap money rates. It couldn't last, it didn't last. And that's why you see, as we look at this chart here, you can look at the actual policy rate, which is basically the rate at which the central banks are starting to lend their money. You can see where it was in January versus what it is now. There are only two of the major central banks, and that's Japan and Switzerland. So, well, actually Switzerland has moved up 
Japan has not moved up yet because they have their own special story. We talked a little bit about that in June, but Switzerland has actually moved their rate closer to zero. They haven't quite made it to zero. So it still costs you money <laughs> to hold and save money in Switzerland. Very interesting case, but you can see Sweden. Um, you can see Australia, which is very commodity sensitive. They, from January, they were near zero to now they've moved to near 1%. It doesn't seem like a lot, but remember that all of your other lending bills upon that. Canada has moved significant, another commodity-based economy. And the UK has also moved from near zero to now they're pushing one and a half percent. They're like one and a quarter. And here we are, we've made one pretty, a couple pretty big jumps here. And you can see that's because of the inflation rates in those areas. And different economies are going to have different inflation rates based on their size, their complexity, that sort of thing. But when you start talking double digit inflation, it's going to start to matter. So that's why money just got more expensive. Now, the question you might be saying is what to do about this. Well, it's my distinct pleasure that we're going to roll into the very special live update where we're going to have a live breakdown of the market with a special guest. Check that out in part two of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. But as a headline, one of the things I want you to think about is that having the right mindset more so than the right asset is way more important as we look into 2022 second half. It doesn't matter if you got killed in stock or crypto or whatever other markets. It really doesn't matter if you've done well. Right now is a time of adjustment and adjustment of the mindset to thinking that it's time to focus on developing a quality about your investments. Just like the markets are decoupling from each other, the things that are of value are going to stand out if you know what to look for. And the things that are garbage are going to stay depreciated. It's time to start to separate the wheat from the chaff, as they say. And the way that you do that is from an analytical step-by-step, -step, really times-taking approach to saying, hey, I need to know what to look for. What should be my expected rates of return? They're not casino high like they have been in the last two years. What we saw was unprecedented. That time's over. So developing the right mindset, understanding that gains are going to be pared down, that some assets you're going to have to hold for a long time. And also that cash flow is key because your expenses, your quality of life, all of these things are going to cost you more because money just got more expensive. Life just got more expensive. So there's a lot of ways to deal with that, but I'm going to stop talking now and I'm going to go into the live session. I hope you've enjoyed this first half. Let's get ready for the next. Hope you know enough to move forward once we're done. For more information about our trading and investing courses, visit www.blacks.academy. That's B-L-A-X-E dot academy.